morning. My name is Danny, and I was reminded this morning when Rebecca's talking about what we can do when all the pastors are away. I think it was grade eight or grade nine when the teacher didn't show up, and the principal didn't know. So we decided to just make paper airplanes, and they got flown. So what do you want to do? So it's good to be here today. Um, Nelson said, you can just introduce yourself. And it's sort of what we're doing here today. We're just doing what we do and uh, we'll be fine. A uh, little bit about myself. Uh, I was on staff at this church from May of 2020 till June of 2021, just on a part-time basis. Walked with the staff and the leadership. Uh, through a, a very interesting time in the life of this church and it was a sheer pleasure for me to be walking alongside and so uh, part of my heart is here. I've been walking with Nelson since the church was uh, begun 12 years ago or so, maybe 13 by this time. So part of Artisan is part of me and uh, I feel at home and I don't feel at home and, and uh, it's just uh, good to be here again today. I am the, young, the youngest uh, son of immigrant parents. My parents were born in Russia. My grandparents were born in the Ukraine, or in Ukraine, and so you can well imagine that uh, there's been pretty interesting emotions within my spirit in this last couple of months. I can't keep my face away from the, uh, the news stories, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a, a fascinating time in the world just when we thought it would become more normal when, uh, when COVID would disappear and it's hardly disappeared and uh, the world has gotten even crazier. I grew up in Southern Manitoba uh, and uh, have lived in Germany for a year, lived in Israel on a number of occasions. And so you will know that my education in Jewish studies will creep into this sermon at various parts. And uh, I'm married to Lois, she's here with me today. We have three children and four grandchildren living in Richmond, BC. And uh, I'm 72 and I'm trying to be retired, but not this morning. <laughs> I've called my sermon this morning, Losing My Religion. And I'm basing it and have been asked to base it on Acts 11 verses one to 18. One of the rules of preaching, and I've taught some preaching courses in my life, is that the preacher should never return, refer to popular songs and movies that are from an earlier era and are at least and older than more than half of your congregation. So I'm aware of the risk I'm taking right now. Losing my religion, some of you will get into very deep thoughts about what it means to lose your religion. And some of you are just thinking about the band R.E.M. and what that means. And it doesn't all mean what we thought he meant it, uh, when I went on uh, wonderful old Wikipedia last night to find out what the Michael Stipe, Stipe, I think was his name, was thinking when he wrote the song. It wasn't at all about getting rid of the church or religion or anything else, but nevertheless, we can do with it whatever we want. So losing my religion is a theme as a, as a person who's been a pastor for 38 years, part of the institution, the system, you will hear in my voice, and I guess I'm, I'm advertising, I, might, I may or uh, 
giving you a, a heads up that I feel I have the right to be rather critical of institutional religion because that's where I've been. This old white guy has been in the middle of it and has exerted ex extreme amounts of power that I wasn't aware of often. And so when you hear me getting a little snide about the church, please forgive me and uh, pray for my healing. In 1980, Lois and myself were on one of our many uh, sojourns in Israel, and we were invited to a special showing of the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Here's the old movie. Uh, to my Jewish friends and my Jewish people that, I, that I've interacted with so, so often, it was their movie. To my Ukrainian, Russian, Mennonite, ethnic Mennonite, Russian, Russian people, Fiddler on the Roof was their movie, and how dare the, Russian, the Jews claim it? because the stories were so very parallel. We were invited to this special showing at the Jerusalem Theater on the west side of the city of Jerusalem in this amazing theater to, to screen that film some years after it already been running. We sat right in the middle of this Jerusalem Theater and next to me, Lois was on this side, next to me was this very well-dressed woman, at least twice my age, who was dressed and showed like she was at the highest social event of the year. So I was somewhat intimidated by her, and not so much as later on when in the film, if you remember the film, if you don't, it doesn't matter, I'll tell you enough about it here. The scene that came on was where this young non-Jewish Russian man is standing across the cow from Tevya the milkman father of this family in Russia. And this non-Jewish Russian man is asking Tevya for permission to marry Tevya's daughter. But even before Tevya could extend his horrified answer to this upstart young Russian man daring to ask for the hand of a Jewish girl, the woman beside me, I don't know whether she poked me or whether she elbowed me, but she said, he's a goy. You know what a goy is? A Gentile. You know what I am? I'm a Gentile. I went like this in my chair. And you can well imagine that I never ever told her that I am a goy too, sorry. More on that later, that's gonna come into, this, into uh, this sermon in some ways. In the meantime, come back with me to around 35 AD or so, 40 maybe. And you may be familiar if you grew up in the church or Sunday school with the biblical story of Peter's dream vision of where in his sleep or in his in a state of euphoria on the roof of a building in the city of Joppa, he, has this, he sees this image of all these animals writhing in this sheet that's coming down from heaven and a loud voice is saying, eat from this without prejudice. Such a request or such an order would have been a contradiction to all the Jewish rules of that day to today about kosher eating, kosher food. Because it was clear to Peter in seeing the vision that at least half the animals in the sheep were, were unclean and not to be even touched by anybody in practicing the Jewish law and practice. That's where the original dream had taken place. After which... Peter, although he protested that he should be touching these unclean things, the voice of God said to him, whatever I make clean is clean. Don't you dare call it unclean. 
Then there's a knock on the door and these men come and invite him to Caesarea, which is a walk up the coast of the Mediterranean where, where the Romans are stationed to meet Cornelius, a Gentile leader of the, of the Roman army placed in Caesarea. And he goes and visits and preaches and there's a, a religious breakthrough. So now Peter is facing two places where he's losing his religion, literally. In the Jewish faith, if you break the laws, you are losing your religion. In Acts 11, we hear the story for the second time within a very short space in the book of Acts, and it's in Acts 11, verses 1 to 8, and I'm going to ask that we have that on the screen, and I'm going to read it out loud, and you can read quietly or out loud with me if you want, but let's just absorb this story as, uh, as we read it through. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. After his being in Jaffa and then going to Caesarea, he was summoned to Jerusalem to talk with the mucky mucks and the leaders of his new developing religion, who were all mostly Jewish at, yet at this point. Saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them, step by step saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven being lowered by its four corners and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, by no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time, the voice answered from heaven, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. It's a stunning story, not only all on its own, but in the context of the Jewish thinking of the day to hear that story. Now, there's so much going on here in these 18 verses. Help me out. Let's talk a little bit. As you were listening, as you were reading here, did something jump out at you that you've never ever thought about before when you've read this text, those of you that are familiar, or if it's brand new, is there something just sort of got in your head? What kind of questions maybe come out of this text? Just for a bit, let's hear from some of you 
What words grabbed you? What did you hear? What was surprising? What was annoying? What was hard? Whatever. And I'll just repeat what you said. We can't move off the camera. Hello, people at home. Sorry. Control mindset right from day one. Anything else? <laughs> the audacity of Peter to say by no means. Have you ever walked in the streets of Jerusalem? I don't want to overly stereotype here, but when you live in the streets of Jerusalem, whether you're on a bus or a store or anywhere, Everybody's always arguing. You have full permission, it seems to me, within the Jewish mindset to disagree with whatever's going on around you. And even to God's voice. What? No way. It's good to remember. And it's, it's unfortunately, in my mind, we haven't carried enough of that along into, into the Christian world where we can disagree and still not kill one another. Because the rabbis also said, as soon as you say something that draws the color from someone's face, you have shed their blood. And when we walked to school in the years that Lois and I were studying in Jerusalem, we were always amazed. We often saw people face to face shouting at each other in the street. And we'd come back an hour later, they were drinking coffee. They were still friends. <laughs> I even saw people shouting at buses that the tires had broken off, that they, would get, they were supposed to get out of their way so that they could get through. So that's the kind of argumentative setting in which acts is often found and here we see it anything else this is way better than the stuff i prepared <laughs> say, say again i still creation is good god doesn't make a mistake a massive thing. Be open, be open, be open. We're going to hear some of that later on. Anything else? The willingness of Peter to listen to God and to follow through. The willingness of Peter to listen to God and follow through at great expense. His job was on the line. And when you read through this text as we've read it, and when you think Jaffa, a good, probably a good day's walk, to Caesarea, and then another day's walk to Jerusalem, he was under the gun. He, he, was, he was summoned. And of course, he knew he was summoned by people who weren't shy. Anything else? There was no guideline to this new movement. But of course, the people in Jerusalem thought that this was still just a new little corner of Judaism. As shocked as they are, but the Gentiles are now being brought in. But, there's, but there are no rules, and it's been our rules. Uh, most of you will know that the Jewish religion already by that time was ordered by 613 rules. Can you imagine? Remembering 613 things related to 
to what you eat, who you marry, uh, where you walk, how you dress, and everything under the sun. It was all laid out. And to all of a sudden, it'd be an open kingdom. And when somebody now breaks the rules, and somebody with the, with the, the status of Peter to say, you know, I'm wondering about kosher. Hmm, I'm wondering about those Gentiles. Fascinating stuff. It's, it's enormous. Anyone else? What we're hearing here is the graciousness of God who gives, gives space and time. So he lets Peter see the vision on his own, lets him think about it for a day to get from the food to the Gentiles in Caesarea, and then he has a day to consider too when he's riding a horse or a donkey or walking to Jerusalem to process. And for you, the message there is that God gives us space and time in his graciousness. He meets us. Remember when we used to say in our evangelism classes, God meets you where you are at and takes you on. There's a whole interpretation of biblical text now that, that when the space between the beginning of the Old Testament and the end of the New, there's been a huge transition that God has taken us through and doesn't just smash everything to bits, but moves from... Uh, sort of understanding the kind of paganism that was behind the writers of the Old Testament to the complete upset of the world through Jesus. So, fascinating insight. Thank you. Sure. break something from sacred to profane, profane back to sacred. In, in family systems theory, there'll be some of you that know systems theory, the, the, lead, the lead image or symbol is that of a mobile. And as long as everything is okay, the mobile is flat. When the wind blows, it starts to shake above the child's bed. When you apply that mobile to family systems, whenever there's a crisis, the mobile shakes. But the theory says you can only make changes when the mobile is shaking. When it's flat, nobody can, you can't do anything. So leadership people, whoever they are, or however they manage in a family systems kind of thinking, when there is too much chaos and the people feel at sea, it's the leadership's job to try to attempt to balance it out a little to feel better again. And when a place is, when it's balanced, then it's the leader's job to unbalance it. So in my 38 years of pastoring, I loved to throw hand grenades into the membership meeting when we were, we were feeling too self-satisfied. And the, and the moderators would say, 
please keep your mouth shut at this meeting. We want a quiet, easy one and go home and have coffee. But I just couldn't. I just had to pull a pin and throw because otherwise there was no growth. But it's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. Good. Anything else? Yes, <laughs> we gotta work together. Thank you. I think one of the things to remember to look at this Acts 11 text and the massive shift that's going on here, that the Jewish religion is less about belief and more about practice. Christianity has always, at least institutional Christianity has always stressed belief and that the practice come after. I had three Jewish rabbis as professors when I was studying in Jerusalem, and we had one very dramatic professor who used to say, we Jews practice, but we don't believe. You Christians believe, and we haven't seen any of you practice yet. And then he'd walk out of the room for us to let that sink in a little. And then we'd come back, and then we would argue with him, and he would love it, but we'd always lose the argument because he was so good at it. But it's fascinating, belief and practice. When Peter heard the voice of this dream vision, one clearly deemed unclean and pronounced to be clean, he thought he was losing his religion. But he got over it so quickly. The laws, of course, became, became sacred and non-negotiable. On Friday nights in Jerusalem, Lois and I would go almost every Friday down to the wall that used to be called the Wailing Wall, now it's called the Western Wall. And there were Jewish evangelists on the, on the square in front looking for Jewish men especially who had not prayed for a long time and asking us to pray with them. And they would come in, are you Jewish? Yes, no, if you're not, well, then they would, would walk away. But they would often, in their friendly manner, they were usually from New York or New Jersey, so they were quite forward. Uh, they would shake hands with me, but they wouldn't shake hands with Lois. Because they didn't know whether she was unclean or not. They were still practicing that law, in spite of the fact that, that they, were, they were reaching out. The laws became sacred. So when we think back, those of you that know the New Testament so well, that Jesus flaunts the Sabbath laws, you know, that was a death sentence right there. We met a woman in the grocery store and then at a park at a, a kind of a Jewish uh, religious party in the street who noticed that we behaved differently than the people around us. So she invited us to their place for the Sabbath dinner. So the Sabbath was the next day after the second time we'd met her. And she said, come to my door, do not ring the doorbell. We came up the steps on the morning of the Sabbath and there was tape over the doorbell and a little sign that said, do not ring the doorbell because of the Sabbath. So we knocked on the door. Why didn't, she, why didn't we ring the doorbell? Because you shall not cause a fire, make a fire on Sabbath. So when you ring a doorbell, it sparks. When we got in, she apologized. We sat around this sumptuous table. She apologized that the food was a little a little off, a little cool, because it had been made the day before and kept in the warm oven, which she had lit the day before, but she couldn't relight on the Sabbath. 
And so here was this, this very outgoing Jewish woman who was happy to have us unclean people in her house, but she still was practicing those laws right down to the details. So when Jesus flaunts Jewish Sabbath laws, the codes around male, female, about children, relationships, he's at great risk. And of course, that's what's leading into the Peter stuff already. In our day, even in, uh, in Israel, there is a sense, and in the Jewish law, which we've also lost in Christianity, a sense of the whole community is facing salvation or the loss of salvation, not the individuals. We've individualized our faith to such an extent we have come to believe if I say if I pray the prayer one day and, and no matter how I almost no matter how I behave since I'm in. In Jerusalem, we were so amazed that at the end of Sabbath, before the two stars or three stars came out to show the end of the Sabbath, if any cars drove through the religious section of, of Jerusalem, there were young men all over the place throwing stones at the cars. If a movie theater put its lights on before the stars came out, they would throw rocks through the windows of the movie theater to make sure that those lights were shut down. And we from the West were outraged. There were all sorts of people in lineups uh, in these cars and in lineups to the theater that were carrying machine guns and they put their heads down when people were throwing stones at them. And then we became to understand that because the Jewish understanding is that we're all at risk, the whole Jewish faith is at risk if somebody breaks the Sabbath law, therefore they have the right to throw stones at you if you're breaking the Sabbath law because we're all sinking together if you don't do this. Kind of an idea that would kind of be nice to creep into the church a little bit, to hold each other accountable and say that every, I have the right, you have the right to mind my business. But how do we figure that out? But all of that's going, taking place in this story. So back to our story. The outrage of imbibing unclean food and fraternity with unclean people is what's at stake here. And how the people are astonished at the end of the text that God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. That is the woman beside me at the theater saying, you're a goy, but that's okay. You can marry my daughter. No. Such thinking would have never been considered in that day in the Jewish community that they would eventually accept Christianity. Now there's been a long history since on how bad the behavior has been between the Christian church and the Jewish people. And also I heard more times than one Many times I heard from Jewish people, Jewish gentlemen, usually on the street, that were very happy to talk to me and me to them, said that the reason they could not accept anything about Christianity was because Hitler was a Christian. And to adopt anything Christian again was to give in to the continuation of the Holocaust. Well, that makes us pretty careful in our conversation. And we are compelled then to listen. You know, I don't think Jesus, and I'm not new on this, came to start a new religion. I think he was just trying to renew, revive Judaism a little. It wasn't even about religion. It was about being connected to God. Peter's listeners wanted, would wanted to know that day why suddenly he was so open to this new understanding. 
How can there be such a thing? Can people come together? Is there such a thing as a rule-less religion of God-fearing faithfulness and righteousness that brings transformation and a peace? How can we do this together? How can we live with those open edges? And our parallel question would be, can faith be lived with inclusivity? How do we live so openly? The record of the New Testament in church in Acts, in Acts 4 says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved in reference to Christ. Such a statement, there is no one else in Christ feels like a restrictive statement. But we could back up and say, actually it's a unrestrictive statement. It means Christ is there for all. It's not narrow, it's a wide statement. He turns the statement on its head. A God for all, a savior for all people, that was a very, very foreign concept. In the, in the ancient Near East, gods were local. They only loved their own people and hated everyone else. And so when all of a sudden, somebody is starting to say, beginning with Peter, beginning with Jesus as he was teaching, that we are here for inclusivity. It's a massive statement. Just last week, I heard a story of a funeral service up in somewhere in western, uh, northwestern Alberta. Uh, a known evangelist had passed away, and the family had asked the, the preacher who was conducting the service to preach on John 3.16 and to present the truth of John 3.16. But instead of doing it the way it's usually taught as a call to give your life to Christ, although that was below the surface of it, Stressed that in, when John 3.16 said, God so loved the world, it may well have been the first time ever in a human history that God was revealed to loving the world and not the local band. It's an incredibly inclusive statement that all are united under this one God and that Jesus was the one. It was new and it was radical beyond anything ever heard in the ancient world. Jesus introduced his religion in this way and Peter following up is breaking the norm of all religions to that time. And of course there's other evidence in the New Testaments. In Paul, Galatians 3, 7, there is no longer Jew nor Greek slave nor free, male nor female. What do we do with that in our day and age? I mean, that's still rattling our brains. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. Romans 14, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Again, in Romans 8, will affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. What's been the message of the institutional church for this last 1,200, 1,400 years? You see it through my narrow lens or you're lost. That's not in these texts. 
There are texts, of course, that we know that can be interpreted more exclusive, to be sure. But I don't think they can be emphasized without looking at these as well. We need to hold some kind of mysterious balance. And so we have in these texts and in the story of Peter, this massive call to inclusivity. An inclusive God by definition radiates our propensity towards inclusivity. We need to leave it up to God and not make ourselves the God of who decides. This inclusivity is a very characteristic in the mystery of Jesus and it is mysterious. Of what he taught, of what his kingdom exuded at its heart. So we've weaponized the texts, we've weaponized our traditions so that we know who's in and who's out as if it matters whether I should know. The beginning of my pastoral ministry and I became a pastor by accident through a telephone call, so-called. Um, I remember the first few funerals I did, people wanted me to tell them whether their child, whether their grandmother was saved. And I thought that I had to have an answer. I had drunk that juice that somehow I would, because I was wearing this invisible collar, I should know that. We don't know ever the nature of relationship between any person and God. David Bentley Hart, not credible in very many uh, conservative theological Christian circles says, and I find myself often agreeing with him, I'm firmly convinced that two millennia of dogmatic tradition have created in the minds of most of us a fundamentally misleading picture of a great many of the claims made in Christian scripture. So we need to become humble and leave it to God. So at funerals now, I say, I don't know where your grandmother is, but I know God is gracious. I don't know where your child is. I don't know their relationship with God, but God has all the ability to speak with them and they to respond to him. <laughs> Writers as, such as Dostoevsky tell it well through the character of the Grand Inquisitor in the novel, Brothers Karamazov. And if you don't, if you haven't read that book, all 900 and 700 pages thick, just pick it up at the used bookstore and just read the chapter, The Grand Inquisitor where the Grand Inquisitor, the big church leader in Spain who is burning at the stake all the heretics, suddenly hears that Jesus has come to Spain. And so he has the, the Inquisitor, who of course is condemning all these people who are heretics to death, he has Jesus arrested and he goes to jail to see Jesus. And he said, you left, the Grand Inquisitor said, you left it to us to decide who's in and who's out. Don't bother us now. Don't bother us now. Get lost. And Jesus simply kisses him on the lips and says nothing. Just an absolutely incredible critique of the church and a celebration of who Jesus was in his Years ago, J.B. Phillips, an English Bible scholar, translator, author, wrote a book, Your God is Too Small. 
by criticism of the institutional churches that we have created a small God, limited to our own abilities to understand and to reflect. And we've created the reading of a book and a notion of this divine being that is small. In my journey now to end, now getting longer, I have found more and more that I am serving a God who can be less and less described by the words that I have. God is becoming more and more difficult for me to reduce to anything, even explainable. He is a God, though, who exudes grace and mercy and love. That is becoming clearer and clearer. He is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And his bigness means he is more inclusive than I could have ever dreamed or imagined. And I no longer feel the need to decide what God would say or do, except that he's driven by love and grace. That love is so huge. And listening to quirks and quarks this week, trying to understand what that black hole was that they got a picture of, realize in my very minute understanding of what a black hole was, and it's minute, is that God is the antithesis in size and light to a black hole. How dare I have the courage to stand up in a church and say, here's who God is. I should be scared to death. My thoughts are that should I live long enough, I think somebody who has almost never ever stopped talking will be awed to silence. And I don't think I have to live much more longer while I will just be sitting in awe, amazed at God's greatness. No words in my vocabulary left but left to die with a smile on my face, ready for yet another transformation. So what's jumping out of God's text very quickly? And I hope that this is added to our encouragement. God is bigger than what too many of us have allowed ourselves to know. We are called to look wider, higher, not narrower nor thinner. Jesus was not permissive but he was to the utmost generous in his love, gracious in his style. By such love and compassion, we can be nothing but awed and humbled. Jesus was seldom restrictive. Oh, there's stories with the Pharisees. He was pretty tough on them, very tough on them, with the moneylenders at least once. Pretty passionate about how he felt about them negatively. But more often, he was inviting and inclusive with children, with women, the despised, the disenfranchised, the hurting, the lost, the blind, the crippled. Jesus was more celebratory than constraining. Jesus was not a conservative. Now you can call me. I get calls and emails when I say Jesus wasn't a conservative. I don't go so far as to say he's a liberal. And of course, that's... Of course, I'm speaking small letter, conservative, liberal, right? He was a radical. In relationship to the Jewish religious context, he was a progressive, he was inclusive, he was opening, and he was inviting. To the seeker, he was safe. To the wanderer, he was winsome and attractive. To the broken, he was beloved and affectionate. We followers of Jesus have a task to upend the tattered reputation the Christian church has built up of itself. 
and turn the corner, turn the notion that we serve a nasty God, a local jealous God, to the one who is all for us, for the entire human race and beyond. Our Jesus stands tall with open arms, turned upside, turning upside down the world's fallen view of power and control, calling for a kingdom view of race and gender, justice and mercy, love and compassion. I pray for the day when the Pope will stand on the soil of our buried First Nation children, weep for their deaths and the ongoing damage, and that he will acknowledge the sins of the church and its racism and declare all to be children of God. I pray for the day when our evangelical and conservative denominational leaders will invite our LGBT folk and their parents and their children to let them wash their feet. The leaders wash the feet in a sign and signal of their humility. I pray for the day when our conservative denominations will take the posture of apologizing for all their harshness and exclusivity and not leave it to the next generations to somehow apologize for them. I pray for all who have been downtrodden to know that they are fully valued, equal, included and celebrated by the church and know that such is the signal of Jesus. On my way here today, on our way here today, stopped on Main Street at J.J. Bean to buy an expensive cup of coffee. There was a woman sitting on the sidewalk. I had a pocket of change in my pocket to pay for parking when I would head downtown somewhere. I gave her the pocket full of change and she said, can I give you a hug? But it's COVID time. I'm an old white guy. I couldn't not hug her. I hugged her. I hadn't told Lois the story in the car yet. She said, that's the first money I got today. She said, Thank you for letting me hug you. Your cheek was so hard against me, it hurt my cheek that it felt good. I could have gone home, the day was done. But I was well aware how uncomfortable I was. This was easier than that. May the losing of our religion become the unmistakable revealing of Jesus to all. We are in a new day. I pray that you have been encouraged by Peter's biblical dream. <laughs>